once again you have stumbled upon the podcast of Tressler Mennonite Church. If you keep listening, you'll hear the sermon from our Sunday morning service on March 5th, 2023. This week the text was Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. You can actually come back every week if you want to hear the sermon from our Sunday morning service. We started this podcast for people in our own congregation who have to miss the service, but who still want to keep up with our sermon series. I can remember when Clint was here as an interim pastor a while ago. I wasn't quite sure, actually, how long ago it was. I had to look it up. And I think it was April 2009 to April 2011, so it's getting to be a while ago. But he could stand up here on a Sunday morning and he could talk. And at least in my memory, it didn't feel like I was listening to a sermon. He was just sort of up here having a conversation with me, although maybe a little bit of a long-winded conversation. But when he was done, I felt like the conversation could continue and I could keep talking with him. And I thought, you know, if I could preach like that today, that might be helpful because the passage that we, that we have for this morning is one that will sometimes divide people. Some Christians can get pretty passionate about whether or not it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. And of course, by passionate, I mean sometimes if the preacher says the wrong thing, they'll walk out and never come back. Or depending on their personality, they'll try to make sure the preacher walks out and never comes back. But So we're going to get to the passage in a minute, but I'm, I thought, I want to say two things right, right at the start. That The one is that I, I actually don't think this is quite what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he was writing this for the first time. If, if you want to understand salvation and you're trying to really wrap your head around it, yes, this is a good passage to look at, but I, th- I think he was going in a different direction than some of the questions that we ask when we go to this passage. But the other is that I, th- I thought maybe I should start by trying to do sort of a personal summary of some of my thoughts. Sometimes I try to avoid that and just focus on the passage and not tell you what I think. That has caused trouble in the past as well. So at this point... I think I might be wrong sometimes, probably, be human, but, but the question people ask is, can you lose your salvation? And if by lose your salvation you mean, is there any sin that I could commit that would cause God to reject me? If that's what you mean, then I think the answer would be no. I don't think anyone can lose their salvation. And I, I thought of the story of Hosea, and I know that Sometimes men and women read and hear this story differently, and that's completely understandable. And depending on your own life situation, the, the story of Hosea can be, can be kind of painful. But I think it's still perhaps relevant to our discussion and topic for this morning. So Hosea had a really difficult life, and part of what was difficult about his life is that he was married to Gomer. But not that Gomer, of course depending on your generation. Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer, and they had some kids, and she was not faithful to him. She left him. She took another lover, probably the way it's written, a couple of lovers, several of them. She ended up being in some sort of bondage or slavery. But her husband, Hosea, hunted her down. He found her. He bought her. He took her home. 
and he loved her. And scripture says that Hosea's painful life is a little bit of an illustration of how God relates to his people. So God loves his people the way a good husband loves his wife, a perfect husband. A really, God is good, God is perfect, and so we will not see this modeled in perfection the way he lives it out. But God loves his people the way a good and perfect husband would love his wife. But God knows that his people will wander. He knows they will be unfaithful. But God promises that he will be faithful right through it all. And God will search for his people. He will buy them back. And he will take them home and love them. And if we look at the rest of scripture, we'll see that the price that he paid when he made this purchase was the blood of his own son. And yet I know that the story of Gomer and Hosea are... Well, it illustrates God relating to a group of people, the people of Israel, and and you might wonder if that applies to individuals. But in the New Testament, we get another story with the same kind of of meaning. Oh, this is a parable that Jesus told. It's in Luke 15. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but a man had a son, and the son essentially rejected the man and said, hey, dad, I wish you were dead because I really want your money more than I want you alive. I want my inheritance. And so the father gave him his inheritance, and the son left, and he went away, and he went to live big and do the things that he wanted to do. And in the end, he ended up up utterly ruined and in a really bad place, and he crawled home again. And the story says that as he was coming home, he didn't expect to be accepted as a son, but he thought maybe he could be accepted as a servant somewhere on the far corner of the estate. But the picture Jesus paints with this story is that the father is actually standing there waiting. Apparently, maybe every day, just watching, waiting, thinking maybe today this will be the day that my son is going to come back. And he sees his son in the distance and he runs to him, he embraces him, and he celebrates. My son has come home. And so there are two stories. One is the painful life of Hosea, the other a parable Jesus told, but both seem in some ways to address this question, can I lose my salvation? Or in other words, can I sin in such a way that our Heavenly Father is going to say, nope, never again, I won't accept you. And both stories seem to say, no. We see the picture of God standing there waiting and watching, longing for his son to come back. Or the other is actually more active with Hosea going out apparently, and searching for and finding and buying his wife back, taking her home and loving her again. So can I lose my salvation? Probably no. But there actually is another question that's phrased a little bit differently that is also relevant. And sometimes people ask this, and I don't find the answer as easy, which is essentially, can I throw away my salvation? Or or, could I spit in God's face, turn away, and never, ever stand in his presence again by my own choice? I find that question much harder to answer. I think of our stories, I mean, I know you don't want to run with metaphors too far, but, but what if Gomer, instead of being an abused slave that could be purchased back, had been happily married to somebody and said, uh-uh, I'm not going with you? Or if the son had uh, used his money a little more wisely and was happy and prosperous in a far distance and said, I'm just glad to be away from my dad. I know you can't run with metaphors too far, but Those are the harder questions. Is it possible to reject God or not? I don't have a good answer for that one. I am not sure. I don't know. It seems like maybe our passage suggests you can. But let's go on to the passage now that I've tried to tell you my my kind of best guesses 
which are inadequate and probably at least partially incorrect. But let's go back to the passage. Jerry read it. It's really short, but I, so I just will read it again. I want it in your minds as we go through it. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. So actually, I do want to start with verses 7 and 8. I was reading the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I think I've said before, if you don't have any commentaries and you want just one two-volume set to try to start, that's the one I would recommend not because it's perfect, because it's pretty good. The writer on this passage shared something that I changed the way I looked at these verses, and I suspect actually the writer is correct, at least it really made sense to me. The writer said, essentially, if you're going to be looking at this metaphor, one question to ask is, if it's an agricultural metaphor, put yourself in an agricultural mindset. Why does a farmer burn a field? Does he do it to destroy the field, to punish the field? Is, is the author trying to, to use this as a symbol of the fires of hell? Well, why do farmers burn fields? I got to thinking, I haven't seen anybody burn a field in Delaware. I don't know if it happened in the past. Um, but it did in the mid-90s when I was a kid in Missouri. They would burn the field opposite our house once in a while. And it was kind of impressive to watch them light a couple hundred acres on fire and let it rip. Farmers burn the fields to get rid of the weeds, to get rid of the thorns, to get rid of whatever trash is out there so that the field can be restored to productivity. So the field in this illustration that the author of Hebrews is using grew up lots of thorns and thistles, totally useless, ready to be condemned. It's never, ever going to yield a crop as long as those thorns and thistles are there. But burning it doesn't actually destroy the field. It clears it off and it prepares the way for a new crop. And I thought I did actually see something like this happen near my house here in Delaware, but not with fire, but with maybe the modern equivalent, which is herbicides. The field, small field, had a for sale sign out in front of it, and then there were some flags and markers like they were getting ready to build a house or do something like that. And then nothing happened for several years. Lots of weeds and trees grew up, and by my memory, some of the trees were three or four or five feet high. They got pretty big. It must have changed hands again because then one day in, I think, the late spring, I saw some tire tracks through there where you could see where something had driven through there, and a short while later, all of the stuff in that field was dead. All the trees, all the weeds, everything dead. And then a couple of days later, you could kind of see it looked like he pulled his no-till planter through there without doing anything to them. A couple weeks, corn was growing up underneath all of these dead trees. And it grew a nice crop that year. I don't know what the combine thought of all the dead trees, but that's not my job. But I think that's what the author was kind of envisioning, or at least why do farmers burn fields? It's not to destroy the field. It doesn't do anything to the field. It's to clear it and prepare it. So hold that in your mind as we look at verses 4 to 6. It, it, yeah, just hold it in your mind as we look at verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible 
to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God, it is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. So I think every commentator I read said, this is a really complicated sentence grammatically, and they all did what I am going to do here, which is to chop out that, what's in the NLT, it's the stuff between the dashes. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. So I, I chopped out only, only what the author is using to describe which people he's talking about. So set that aside for a minute. We'll get to who he's talking about, but what he says are pretty strong words. I didn't write the words. As they say, don't shoot the messenger, but it is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. So who is he talking about? Well, that's the words that I took out. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. My best guess is he's talking about Christians. Some people disagree with that because of where they feel that takes the logic of the passage. But, but if you just read that, I'll do the New American Standard, says those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. It seems they received the Holy Spirit. And so I, I feel that any honest, straightforward reading, the author is referring to Christians. And I know that then create some interesting lines of logic, but take it for what it says. It seems that he is referring to Christians. And the author goes on and then explains why they can't be brought back to repentance. And this is the end of verse 6. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. I thought... I thought maybe some context here helps. For us, the crucifixion was 2,000 years ago. And, but but if, if I put myself in the place of somebody who is much closer to it, it may be read a little bit differently. And thinking about it that way was helpful for me. So you could well imagine somebody who knew a man who had been in the crowd that Friday, who was shouting for Jesus to be crucified. You read it around Easter time. Crucify him. Execute him. He claimed to be the son of God. He's claiming to be God's anointed one. He's wrong. Get rid of him. Crucify him. But then years pass, and that man, he begins to interact with Christians. He begins to read the scriptures in a new way, and he says, you know what? I was wrong. I didn't understand. Jesus was the son of God. In fact, Jesus is the son of God, now risen and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So that man turns to Jesus. He says, forgive me. He receives the Holy Spirit. But now if, if time passes and that man, he changes his mind and he says, you know what? Actually, Jesus was wrong. He should have died. It was right for him to have been crucified that time when I was standing in the crowd. He was just an imposter who needed to be executed. So, so when the, in that case, you could sort of, if you put it in a place of an individual person, you could see that when he changes his mind and goes back to his first place, he is essentially saying, actually, Jesus should have been crucified. That's what I believe. He should have been executed for what he said. So by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. And those words sound extremely permanent to me, I, I just kind of final and over. And it is what they are. The author writes that these people cannot be brought 
back to repentance. But this is where the author goes and he tells that metaphor about the field. And that's why I wanted to start with that. So right after saying these words that seem to imply complete hopelessness for any Christian who turns and rejects Jesus, then the author tells a story in which a farmer works hard to restore a field, to get rid of the useless stuff on it, and to make it ready to plant. And it probably sounds a little bit like I'm contradicting myself, and I, I noticed that when I was reading various commentaries. Sometimes I was kind of frustrated with them, but mostly I was frustrated because they didn't acknowledge that there seems like they're saying two different things. So I'm trying to avoid that, that track. It's Verses 4 to 6 present this idea, reading it at face value, that it is a hopeless place from which we cannot return if we reject Jesus after knowing him. But then verses 7 and 8 tell the story of a farmer who works hard to restore a useless and condemned field. And I think all of this should be held in the broader context of Scripture. Remember Jesus' story of the father who stands by the door day after day waiting for his son to come home, or the husband who goes in search of his wife who has abandoned him and sought out other lovers. He finds her and he takes her home and he loves her. So I, I can't give you any definitive answers. If you expected that, then you'll have to find a new church. But all I can do is try to present the text to you. But I, I want to try to do the whole thing. It can, be, it can be kind of tempting when talking about this to take verses 4 to 6 and kind of explain them away a little bit and say, it's very clear you can't lose your salvation. Or depending on your mindset, your background, to sort of emphasize verses 4 to 6 and say, look, Scripture is very clear. You can so be careful and make a powerful warning. You could have a great sermon on that. But if you try to put it all together, all of a sudden it gets, it gets a little hard. And all I can say is when we study Scripture, read the whole thing. Don't ever, don't ever fall prey to the temptation to ignore something because it's inconvenient. If you don't understand, keep reading and trust that God will reveal in time. But let all of Scripture speak to you. But actually, as I said these are the questions we ask, but this doesn't seem to be what the author was trying to say. We'll get, we'll get there, and we have a guest speaker next week, and then two weeks we're going to get to verse 9 and on, but I'll just read 9. The author flows from this to say, but dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we don't really believe it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. So all of this discussion, and the author says, oh, but this doesn't even apply to you anyway. And you're like, well... I'm imagining, Nathan left, but I'm imagining a high school teacher with the class of seniors describing the coursework of that, of that year and then saying, oh, but remember, I'm going to give you some classwork, some homework and some tests and some quizzes. And if you don't do them, you're going to fail. And if you fail, you won't graduate. If you don't graduate, you won't get that job that's been offered to you or you won't be able to go to that college that has accepted you. So you better work. And then he said, but actually, this doesn't even apply to you because I know all of you. I know you're going to work hard. I know you're going to do well. And I know I'm always here to help you. You'll be just fine. And he gives the warning. It's real. But it's not really the point. The point is actually to encourage them to, to, to do a good job, which he knows they can do. And it almost feels like that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. So don't forget the warning. It's there. But it's not the main point, and I don't know that we should run too far with something that isn't his main point. It's a long book with a lot of excellent and interesting stuff in it. I hope we don't get too 
too concerned about some disagreements that might arise from a few verses which aren't entirely clear. And so, in some ways, this is the end of a sermon in a proper sense, and this is where I wish I, wish I could channel Clint and finish off, because there's just something else that I'd like to, to sort of share, and that's that it's really understandable when people wonder whether somebody can lose their salvation. It's, it's a legitimate question, especially when it applies to somebody that we love who has walked with Christ and now is not there, and we wonder where do they stand in light of eternity. So it's a completely understandable question, and yet in some ways it's, it's, it's hardly relevant on a, on, a, on a certain level because Jesus is the one who is the judge, he is both just and he is merciful as well, both just and merciful. And, and he alone knows and he alone decides and he alone holds this authority and power. And so I don't know, I don't have to know, I won't get the choice, but it is a very, very understandable question. And I want to I tell Jesus' story again, just to, just to finish off with his words. So a man had a son a son who experienced all of the rights and privileges and blessings of being a son in a, in a successful and prosperous household. But then one day the son says to the dad, he says, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money because I want to do what I want to do and I want to have some fun. So the dad gives him his inheritance and the son grabs the money. He seems to turn his back on his father and walk away and says, I am never coming home. Now I can start my own life. And the years pass, and the son, the son finds himself in a terrible place, and he wonders, can I possibly go home again? After everything I did, can I possibly go home again? And he says, I know dad will never accept me as a son, but, but maybe I could get hired as a servant. I don't know. And I thought, if this, if this ever describes you, if that situation ever describes you and you think back and you're remembering the sermon by some, some strange coincidence, if ever you begin to wonder, is it possible to turn back to Jesus? You think about what you've done, the words you've said, the attitudes you had, and you think, would Jesus ever take me back? If you end up that place, don't turn to Hebrews 6 and try to study eternal security. Don't buy a thousand books from a thousand different preachers and try to figure out these questions. Just turn to Luke 15 and keep reading the story and then do what the son did. The son turned toward home and he began walking. And while he was a long, long way away, his father noticed him. And again, how did the father see him so quickly at such a distance? I assume the father spent every day standing there at the door looking down the road, wondering if whether maybe today would be a day his son would come home. And the father saw his son, he ran to him, he embraced him, he welcomed him home, and then he throw, threw a huge party. So if you ever wonder whether God will take you back, and you think about all you've done, and you start to think, I just don't know if you will, read the story, and I'm pretty sure you'll discover that God has been standing there waiting all along, waiting for that moment that you turn towards him. And when you turn towards him and start walking, he will run. And then he will greet you and he'll throw a huge party. And I think his parties must be pretty fun. Once again, you have squandered 25 perfectly good minutes listening to a sermon. 
And this particular sermon was March 5th, 2023. The passage was Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. Take care.